Hey there, welcome to the What's Your Thing podcast, where we're all about great conversations with interesting people. That's right, I'm Brennan. And I'm Caitlin. There's something awesome about every person, a thing that makes them truly unique. We wanna know what it is about everyone, so we're asking. What's your thing? Hi everyone, thanks for coming back again. This is episode 12 of the What's Your Thing podcast. I'm one half of your host, Caitlin. On the other half, Brennan, we have a pretty cool direction that we're taking today, Caitlin. I'll let you do the honors, but we have uh, really important things to talk about. So this week, we are lucky enough to have another author with us. We have Misty Pratt. Misty Pratt is a science communicator and author of the upcoming book, All in Her Head, How Gender Bias Harms Women's Mental Health. And this conversation is going to be through that lens of women in the medical system. And I think we'll talk a lot about your experience, Misty, in the medical system and how you kind of um, navigated through it and, and where you are now and what this book is about and what you're trying to say. So, Misty, what's your thing? Yes, thank you so much for having me. Um, so yeah, I guess my thing is this book, which is big. Um, I started thinking about it when I was about 25. Uh, the reason I started thinking about it is that my own grandmother was diagnosed with bipolar disorder when she was in her mid-50s. And at that time, it was 1985-ish. It was really uncommon for women in midlife to be diagnosed with severe mental illness. No one really knew what was going on with her. We just knew she was having these episodes and she went through a really rough time. I think like she was in a system that, you know, really was stereotypical for her in terms of her emotions and how they treated her. Um, they also, you know, highly medicated her and we eventually had to get her into um, institutional care to get some extra care for her. Not me, of course, This I was a young child at the time, but this was my parents who were dealing with this as well as her other children. Um, and I think when I first started thinking about it, I wanted to tell her story to really humanize her, to give her dignity back, because I think she felt like that was taken away from her. And so I started thinking, oh, I'm going to write this nonfiction book about her. But as I kind of went through the end, the years passed, because I'm 43 now, so it's been a long time since I first thought about this, I realized it was actually more about my story and her story and so many other girls and women who go through these issues. And so my story started when I was 16. Um, I had what I fondly call my nervous breakdown. <laughs> and that's not an official mental diagnosis, but that's what it felt like. It felt like my entire nervous system just went offline. I was having a lot of like physical symptoms. So panic and digestive upset. And I also was having the psychological side of just being very sad and anxious and not wanting to go out anywhere. And so I finally got the help I needed. Thankfully, my parents were incredible. They recognized after a while that this was not just stress. It wasn't just going to go away on its own. So they got me into treatment. And this was the mid nineties when, you know, thing, things were better. There were not long wait lists. So I got in and I did outpatient, which I'm lucky I, I didn't do inpatient. And that whole um, experience was really amazing. I had a great therapist and he helped me get to the end. And he, as he discharged me, he said, you know, Misty, 
these things will likely happen again. You'll probably deal with anxiety and depression again in the future. And I was a teenager. So I was like, sure, sure. (laughs) You know, I'm just going to go on with my life and everything's going to be good. But he was totally right. It just came back again and again throughout my early adulthood. And every time it did, the, the therapy and the medications just never seemed to help. And the explanation I got throughout the whole process and in relation to my grandmother's illness was this was like a genetic disorder that I had inherited something from her. I would always have this and I would have to deal with it for my life. And I also got the biological explanation of like, this is a biological illness that you have. You have a chemical imbalance in your brain and you just need to manage it with therapy and medication. But at a certain point, it just wasn't working anymore. Like the medication wasn't working. The therapy wasn't working. And I was like, is there more to this than my chemicals in my brain? Like, is there something beyond this? And that's really what triggered the book as it is now today is that it's a story of, yeah, gender bias in the medical system, especially in mental health care and how we treat women's moods and emotions. Okay. So so I guess the first question then would be like nail on the head, like how do you think your experience would have been different if you were a man? Yeah, that's a huge question. So, I mean, in my research, like certainly I'm a white woman, right? I uh, I have privilege beyond other people's um, backgrounds. I um, got into therapy early. So I'm definitely going to just state that, that there, my experience is not everybody's. But in my research, you know, there was a lot of social pressure that we don't acknowledge that women face that men don't. So things like caregiving burdens, right? So as I grew up and had babies and all that kind of stuff, like emotional labors is a problem for women. Burnout's a problem for women. Um, Things like sexual harassment and sexual violence, we are way more likely to deal with that. And we're likely to deal with that at a young age, which science shows can change our brain, can make us more susceptible to chronic stress. Um, So there's a number of social factors that appear to be putting extra pressure on girls and women. And I'm not saying that all those things are necessarily what happened to me, but that I suddenly realize there's more to it than just something broken within me. It's like, there's something broken in our society and I'm dealing with the consequences of that. And I'm just wondering, because you said you're 43, I'm 42. So I was also a teenager in the nineties. We didn't have cell phones, no social media, didn't get the internet until 2000. So do you think, or, or what do you think the changes or the consequences or the benefits of social media has had as you've gone 20 years, you know, with it in your experience? Yeah. So I cover this a little bit in the book, not, not a lot. So I go through kind of the three big um, changes in a female's life. You know, not all of us go through these, but most of us do. So puberty, pregnancy, potentially, and then menopause. And so puberty is that first one where we know the brain is doing lots of different changes. It's the brain is pruning. So it's kind of getting rid of kind of excess stuff. Um, And so we can be really susceptible to extra added stress at that time. And what research is now showing that is that social media has really amplified that stress. So whereas before the 1990s, yes, we had 
we had harassment, we had inequality, um, we had a lot of misogyny that we were facing in the 90s for sure. But I think now it's just amplified beyond anything we ever faced. Uh, and it seems like now, you know, you have the added kind of cyberbullying that might be going on, loss of sleep for a young girl who might be staying up until two in the morning on her phone, asking me how I know I have two kids. <laughs> um, so there's, you know, that's really, I think, making things even more challenging. And we see that with the rates. We see that with the rates of anxiety and depression in girls compared to boys are just, you know, skyrocketing. It's it's definitely, there's a huge gap there. Uh, and the same thing with su suicidal thoughts um, and ideation. Girls appear to be experiencing that more frequently. Um, boys, you know, very um, sadly are, are completing suicide more often. But again, those rates, there's a huge gender gap there. So what would you say your biggest challenge is right now in women's health, mental health? And I mean, I'm thinking about you as an advocate. What is your mm. biggest challenge right now? So me as an advocate is trying to shift the conversation slightly. So for me, look, I, I think it's really valuable for people to understand their own mental illness in the way that works for them. So if like the biological explanation works for you, that's great. Please hang on to that. Know that that's, that's valid for you. I think personally for me and for a lot of people, it hasn't been valid. And in fact, we see from history, women have always been labeled, you know, imbalanced or nervous, or, you know, our uterus is wandering around our body and causing problems for us. Like there's, you know, hysteria from, from the very early times of human life has been around. And so we've always been sort of slapped with this label of being imbalanced. And so my challenge is trying to get people to see that, to see that when we talk about being hormonally imbalanced, when we talk about having chemical imbalance in our body, is that true? Or is that just another way for us to kind of tell women that this is what's happening to them instead of let's talk about financial stress that women deal with more often than men. Let's talk about poverty that we deal with more often than men. Let's talk about sexual harassment and violence. Like you know, I feel like we're giving society a get out of jail free card, right? Instead of, you know, focusing on those things, we're just sort of saying, you need to balance your hormones and you need to balance your chemicals in your brain by doing these things. And those things are not, um, like they are good, right? Therapy is good. Medication is good. So I'm not discounting all of that, but I think when we want to try to change the conversation slightly to now focus more on society and what society owes us, that we need to change those things. That's my, probably my biggest challenge. So you speak to obviously a history with your grandmother and then seeing that from that perspective, and then you moved to dealing with it yourself. And in the nineties, as you said, you went through therapy and medication. Now being an advocate and an author and kind of like a knowledge, I would say, expert, right? How has your perspective changed since that time, the time of your grandmother, then through your own experiences, now being the person who can share your experiences, but also knows how to maybe change the narrative? How has how your perspective on this changed uh, over the yeah. course of your life? Yeah, well, I make it really clear that like, I don't think I 
am cured of anything, right? Like I don't feel like, oh, I'm in this new and better place. And that old me was just really bad. And now I've learned everything I need to know. Like clearly I still have lots of work to do. I still, I still experience anxiety and depression as well. And I know I can't predict what's going to happen in the future and in my life, right? I could at some point down the road be in a, in a bad place again. I think what I reflect on a lot in my book is what would have happened if someone had told me like, you're not broken. This isn't your brain. This isn't you. This is everything that's going on around you. Um, that's, that's adding to this pressure. That's adding to this problem that you're facing. What would I, what would I have done differently? I don't know. Like, I can't go back to my young self and be like, Oh, I would have, I would have changed tack. I would have gone a different direction, but I think I would have felt less limited like, I feel like because I lived my whole life thinking I'm mentally ill, this is always my problem. I'm always going to have this issue. I, I made life choices based on that. So I made life choices based on, I don't think I can do this because I'm mentally ill and I can't handle these things. Right. And so I really do wonder, would I have had more confidence? Would I've had more, I don't know, just freedom, right. Freedom to maybe be a little bit different, um, and so I do feel less limited now. I feel a much greater sense of freedom, even though I now understand the systems better and how they're impacting me personally. And that's kind of scary because I can't, I'm, I'm only one person. I can't change the whole system. But for some reason that has really just, it's a relief. It's like, oh, it's not me. It's them. <laughs> this isn't, this isn't my problem, even though I'm facing the individual consequences of it, of course. Well, that was going to actually lead into the next question, because now that you're there and there are people speaking out, mental health is not just something that's brushed aside anymore. Like I remember mm -hmm. hearing stories of my grandfather, who I never met. He died in 1972, I think it was. But they always said, oh, yeah, he had panic attacks and that just runs in the family. And that's just the way it was dealt with then. Now there's people are encouraged to speak out and, you know, deal with their I want, I'm trying to use the right lingo, mental health issues. Where do you see this yeah. going in the future now that people are speaking about uh, disadvantages in society? Uh, like there's a sexist element, misogynistic element. Where do you see this going? Or now people like yourself are speaking out and kind of raising awareness. Do you think it's there's change coming? I hope so. Like I talked to a lot of experts in the book, psychiatrists and, and psychologists and, and people like that. And, and I asked the same question to them and they were like, I don't know if I feel that hopeful because they see on the ground, it's hard, right? When you're in the daily grind of that. But I, I do feel hopeful and I feel hopeful because I think being in research and seeing all of the research now coming out about social determinants of health and how, how, how they make up most of our health, like 50% they suspect are what social determinants of health, like in terms of our health outcomes. So things like your income and your education and where you live, those make up 50% of our health outcomes. And so like our disease and, and things like that. So I feel hopeful seeing that change. And I think what, what like, what I'm hoping is going to happen is that we start to shift our funding and our focus away from hospital based care. So, you know, intensive psychiatric care, which is still going to be needed for sure for, for some severe mental illnesses, but we've now just start to shift funding and focus to the community where people live. So like, Imagine a world in which I could just like walk into 
a library or a community center and be like, I am, I am struggling today. Can I talk to somebody? And there's someone just right there, ready to kind of help me out. And then they not only help me out, but they ask me, well, what's going on in your life? Are you, do you have enough food? Right. And so then we talk about food security. Do you, are you lonely? You know, we know that older people are so much more likely in this country to be experiencing like severe loneliness. So what kind of social programs could I then prescribe to you to help with that? Could I get you into an arts-based program or, you know, just any kind of like looking outside the box a little bit. And there's actually a movement called social prescribing that does um, address this where your family doctor would actually be the one to prescribe social programs instead of uh, therapy or medication, which could be necessary too, in addition to those social programs. But it's a really cool new movement that makes me very excited to see where we're going to go with, with mental health care. Can I just follow up? Do you feel like people are going to seek out this more now that it's kind of out there? Because one thing that I find is there's, at least in my experience, there's a lot of stigma with people who are unaware of what's going on. And they say things like, They'll drop terms like, oh, my God, that person, are they bipolar or whatever, because they're having a bad day and you don't know what's going on there. And it kind of, from what I've observed or experienced, it makes you not want to go out if these people like, oh, if they're already thinking this about me. And then if they found out I went and did this, do you see like more of a positive trend that people are actually reaching out more? And especially if this kind of shift happens from institutionalized care to public, do do you see people taking advantage of that? Because I I I think that's a fantastic thing. Yeah, I really hope so. And I realize, like, maybe I live in a bit of a bubble in my own world where everybody is very open. All my friends, we all talk about mental health all the time. Um, But I do realize that that's a very specific experience and that there are a lot of communities and a lot of cultures where it's still totally taboo. It's still not cool to talk about. And I would say definitely, you know, when we're thinking about gender, men and women, it's still not really, you know, something that guys stand around and chat about. Like, how are you? Are you? How are you feeling? Really sad and down today? Like, you know. Whereas me and my girlfriend, we we will just chat about that kind of stuff every time we get together. And so I do feel that we still have some barriers to overcome. I don't think it's going to be an easy fix. I don't think you know, I our mental health crisis will be fixed in the next five years. This is going to take time. But I think again, if we can shift the focus, get it into the community, make it more accessible. Uh, yes, I do feel that people will be more comfortable reaching out for that help. Uh, and bringing it back to your book, your book's available on pre-sale. Where can we find that? Yeah, so in Canada, Amazon.ca, uh, uh, Indigo, uh, in the U.S. I don't know if you have U.S. listeners, but you know Amazon.com and uh, Barnes and Noble. But if you have a local bookstore that you really, really love that you support, you can just call them or walk into the store and and basically tell them the the title, and they will um, pre-order it for you from there. So we always like to support our local bookstore. I love that. Yes, yeah. please do. What, Use local. What's the release date? What's the official date? May seventh. And then finally, just in regards to writing this book, I know it was a really personal experience for you. What are you hoping that the reader gets out of it? So my phrase is always, I hope that people reframe and reclaim their own mental health. So I hope that the reader sees themselves in this book because I shared not just my experience and my grandma, but um, I interviewed many other people in the book, uh, women who shared their personal stories so that we could get this wide range of 
of experiences. And so, yeah, I just really want people to be able to see themselves in the book to say, yes, me too, because we do all, even though we're all so different, every time I did an interview, I, I had something in common with that person. They lived in India, right? And I would have something in common with them to be, I'd be nodding along with them because we had a very shared experience. So yeah, I hope that, that people feel supported by that. Yeah, that's awesome. I love it. I love your, your slogan, even for, you know, I think everyone can benefit from that. So yeah, now for the, sure. the fun part of the interview, uh, yeah. shift the focus from your thing to another part of uh, another uh, thing. We want to know what's something about you that's not your thing like for this. So do you have any uh, hobbies or niches that you want to share with the audience? Something special about yourself that's not your thing? Not your uh, expertise? Yeah. Okay, I'll share this really funny thing. So my dad is a race car driver. He drives vintage race cars. So kind of the old, he has an MGB and he drives that. Uh, he's always hoped that his children would get into car racing. And it was never something I got into. Like I would, you know, we would occasionally go and watch a race, but I'd just be like, yeah. Anyways, so I don't know if you've heard of Drive to Survive, the Netflix show, but it's a show is it the one that's getting everyone? I feel like everyone I know that never was into racing, they watch that and now they're all playing like Formula One games. Exactly. That, so oh, so okay, it's about yeah. Formula One. It's good. Yeah. And so my husband finally got me into watch that and I became obsessed. And I am now a hardcore Formula One fan, which makes zero sense because I I don't care about cars. But Your for some reason, <laughs> and now my dad loves it. And every week when there's a race, we text each other all about the race. So it's been a lovely thing to uh, just find this cool hobby that that really is kind of silly, but makes me super, super happy. Do you have a favorite driver? Are you a team uh, anyone or you just got like it for the sport? Yeah, I don't think I have a favorite. I, I, I'm kind of anti Red Bull just because they've been so dominant and winning so much that to me, I like I like the underdog. So Pierre Gasly, I would say, is, might be one of my faves. Awesome. And you know that's, what? That's uh, I'll have to check that out. I've heard it from enough of my buddies that were like, yeah, they knew nothing. Like you said, they were like not into it. And then they watch it and they're like, this is phenomenal. It is. And then like, for me, it got me into the actual sport so that it's not just the show anymore. I'm actually following the the races every weekend, even though they're on their winter break now, which is sad. So I don't have any racing to watch, but it's like when the NFL season or hockey season ends. Exactly. Like... Now I know what people are talking about when it comes to sports. <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, I, I understand now what it, what it means to follow a sports team. <laughs> Yeah. And it's really nice that you have something that you can do to connect with your dad every week. That's really yeah, nice. Yeah, I really love it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Misty. Um, All in Her Head, How Gender Bias Harms Women's Mental Health is available at amazon.com, amazon.ca. And like we said, just ask your local bookstore at May 7th, 2024. Thank you for such an interesting conversation and sharing so much of ourselves here today. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. Thank you very much. All right. What's Your Thing, episode number 12. So make sure to check us out, whatsyourthingpod.com. Check us out on Instagram, YouTube. Follow us on TikTok. Check us out. We're going to have a blast. What's Your Thing? What's your thing? <laughs>